Today we're going to be wrapping up our summer series on the book of Proverbs by looking at the very famous last chapter, chapter 31, which most people know as the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, I would say that no other passage in Scripture so strikingly contrasts the picture that God paints for godly women, you know, contrasted with the picture that the world paints for what the world considers to be an ideal woman. You know, it was just a couple of years ago in 2017 when Dr. Robert Kelly, who is an expert on inter-Korean relationships and a political science professor, uh, was doing a live interview on BBC uh, talking about the political climate of Korea when his four-year-old daughter and also his nine-month-old son decided to gate-crash the international interview. And so the daughter opens the door and the baby comes rolling in on a walker. And as he's trying to continue, they're, they're doing their thing, and the wife, uh, seeing on a 20-second delay what is going on on live international TV, is horrified, dashes across the hall and throws herself into the room, knocking over books and stuff. She grabs the children, is able to pull them out, walker and all, and then after that, she throws herself back across the floor, reaches in with just one arm, and pulls the door shut in order so that he can continue the interview. Most of you who are mothers are probably very good at that, actually, because you know how quickly you have to move and react sometimes when your children get away from you. Now, what was interesting about that is that that relatively innocuous interview uh, got cut and put onto YouTube, and that thing garnered 40 million views, and it was considered to be <laughs> the most interesting you know, clip that people had seen, and uh, BBC actually brought them back for another interview just to talk about that. The fascinating thing about it is that that, that, that sort of interview spawned numerous parodies online. And on one of the most famous parodies, uh, it's actually done of a mother instead sitting there doing the interview instead of the father. And when the two kids in that video bust into the room, the mother, instead of pausing the interview and trying to keep a straight face, just grabs her four-year-old and sticks a bottle in his mouth and continues the interview. When the baby rolls in with the thing, she rattles with her other hand a toy and hands it to him, all the while continuing to speak. And then it gets even more crazy after that, it's because in the video, as she's talking uh, with them, doing this sort of high-profile interview, she holds up a roasting pan where she's cooking a turkey and smelling it, and then she proceeds to uh, clean a toilet, basically, with her right hand that's somehow brought into view, and then with her left hand afterwards, she starts steam-ironing a shirt at the same time. The kicker of the video, the high point, is when a SWAT team runs in actually with a bomb in a, in, a, in a case. And as she continues to give her interview, she just clips the right wire and they all breathe a sigh of relief as she defuses the bomb and then they leave. Um, why the video got basically 20 million views in a short period of time is this. And I think why it resonates with our culture is because people looking at the mom giving an interview like that understand that that's exactly what it means to be a mom. Life doesn't just stop, it seems, when you have high-profile things that you have to do as well, but you simply do it all. And this is the persona, I think, or the image that the world tries to communicate to us about what is a successful woman in today's day and age. She's effectively a woman who can have a high-profile career. She has a great family as well, and also she multitasks better than even a supercomputer can. That's what we think. The ideal woman is a woman who is an expert in her field. She is well-known and esteemed by male and female colleagues alike. She holds an excellent position in her company. She's known as a leader who is good at decision-making. She has two kids as well who are participate in extracurricular activities. And though she has had two kids, her body doesn't show it because she starts 5 a.m. workouts every day with her personal trainer. She is an individual who, despite her busy schedule, also is a soccer mom and drives her minivan regularly to ferry her kids to all the different errands that she has to take them on. And in the, uh, in the evenings, she's an activist running her YouTube channel, which she promotes things, for example, like animal welfare by taking in rescue pets and so on. Her clothing is always sharp. Her makeup is perfect. Uh, her hairstyle is professional. And her nails are always manicured and never show any signs of damage whatsoever. She knows what she wants, she never lets anybody get in the way of her ambitions, and she always accomplishes her goals. And the question she always gets in this world is, how on earth do you do it all? See, that is a picture in our world that we all understand, because that's what our world says is a successful woman. The question that you get if you are a successful woman is, how do you do it all? 
Now, although this is the picture that I think that mid-20th century feminist ideology helped to construct, you know, for North America, I think that we're actually starting to see a pushback over this unrealistic picture of the ideal woman, even from the secular culture today. Anne-Marie Slaughter is an American international lawyer, and she's an ex-dean at Princeton University. And also, she was the first woman to serve as the director of policy for planning for the U.S. Uh, State Department under the Obama administration. In 2012, just eight years ago, she actually wrote a very famous essay entitled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And in this essay, basically, she argues that most careers, most high-profile careers, are set up in a way that is actually incompatible with maintaining a good, healthy family life. Even if you work harder, she says, and you sleep very like little, it's just not possible. A weekend conference, she says, when your kids are home from school, is still a weekend conference in which you are away from your children. The higher up you get on the ladder, she says, it's just almost incompatible. Now, she says that there are a number of people who are still in our world advocating that you can have it all, and she tries to debunk these myths in a very, very, uh, I think, systematic and thorough way against those who are arguing that what you actually need is just a husband who is willing to kind of take up the extra slack and take care of all these things, she explains basically that that's also uh, unrealistic and also impossible. And the reason why, she says, is that even if your spouse were to carry that load, that does nothing, she says, to stop the strong maternal and reflexive instinct that is inside of you, that when you hear that your kids are in trouble, you feel like you need to be there with them and for them. There's nothing, she says, that you can do to replace that. Mary Madeline was the uh, assistant uh, to President Bush during his presidency, and she used to cry herself, she said, to work due to the stress, actually, of her job. And she would ask herself over and over again, why am I doing this? And she would tell herself, I'm only doing this, sacrificing, because I believe in the presidency. But one day she writes that she had an epiphany. She realized, I'm indispensable to my kids, but I'm actually not close to indispensable in the White House. And as soon as she realized that, she realized the choice was easy, and she quit her high-profile job. Slaughter also deals with a third myth, she said, that persists in our culture, and that is this. Many women are today are taught, you can have it all, you just can't have it all at once. In other words, she said, you have to have your kids and your job, but you just have to kind of work them so that they're sort of separate and around each other. And her point is this. She says that if you're talking about a high-profile career that involves years of investment and doing things and travel and so on, you have this that actually doesn't hold true whatsoever. And this is a woman who was an ex-dean as well at uh, a high-end university. She says that if you try to have your kids young and then you start your career track in your 40s when your uh, children are grown, the problem is, she says, you're competing against your younger self, women who are basically half your age, more competent and more skilled. And it's very difficult, she says, at the high ends to be able to ascend to the level that you need to be if you don't have those early years to invest in. The converse, she says, is also true. If you choose actually to delay having children and don't have them until your late 30s or even into your 40s, the other problem is that just as your career, she says, is peaking in your late 50s and you're at the place where you're about ready to lead companies and do amazing things, your children are actually hitting the teenage years, and she says that is actually when they also need you the most. She said children actually demand the most of your time when they're very, very young or when they are teenagers in a sort of different way. She says no matter how you put it, in high-profile careers, you cannot actually have it all, not even if you say, I'll just have it at a different time. Very, very insightful, her work here. So her argument is if people want to have solid careers, then what has to happen is that companies actually need to, in their psyche and in their thinking, reevaluate what they believe about the value of family. And they need to actually construct job requirements that do not interfere, she says, with the family schedule. In other words, she argues that employers need to allow for remote work, night work when kids are in bed, not having these in-person meetings that interfere with your ability to be at home when your children are at school. But she argues and points out that the modern economy and the way that most things are set up uh, do not allow for this and therefore set women up for failure. Another uh, author that I read on this subject, another high-profile woman, said this. She says, your career will never love you back. Only people can. So be sure to leave room for them. And honestly, whether you're a woman or whether you're a man here, this is absolutely true, you know. The real question for us in a work-driven culture is how important is our family and home? Our jobs continue to make demands on us. Bills need to be paid and so on. But the question is, how important actually is the home? 
how much do relations t- relationships take actually to cultivate? And is there value in, in cultivating, homemaking, and spending time with your family and those relationships that are absolutely key to your life? Have we lost our bearings as a culture in our desire to get to the top? And this is why I think our text today, Proverbs 31, is so critical because God's word helps us to correct a society with ideals for women that are not based on God's picture and view um, that are found in his word, okay? If we were to look at Proverbs 31, which we're going to do in a bit, the Proverbs 31 woman is really an absolute shocker. She appears at the end of the book as a tangible example of what it's like to fully embrace, basically, the 31 chapters of wisdom that are given in this book, so the totality of God's wisdom, But the truth of this is that though many people are going to praise her, many, very few people are actually going to be like her, just like God's word. Many people will say God's word is great, but very few people are going to actually emulate and follow God's word. Now, in this proverb, there's one thing that's kind of hard to see when you look in English, and that is that the 22 verses that make up this little poem here are actually an acrostic poem. Now, an acrostic poem is a poem which kind of begins with every letter of the alphabet. So if we're writing one in English, you'd start with A, B, C, D, and you go all the way down to Z. Then you'd have 26 verses. In Hebrew, there's only 22 letters. So the acrostic poem begins with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, He, and then goes down and continues. So in the, in the first verse, the, 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 um, the excellent wife here, the word for wife is Eshet in the Hebrew, and that begins with the Hebrew word Aleph. And then the next word, batach, which, is, uh, which begins with bet, is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when you're looking at this thing, what you're looking at is a very beautiful sort of poetic picture of what Proverbs says is the ideal uh, woman. So it's not a propositional sort of set of you know, things that you do, 22 points to make a better you kind of thing, but it's actually poetry that is trying to paint for you in very large brushstrokes a beautiful image of the a beautiful divine image of what God, I, God looks at and is pleased with. Now, with this in mind, knowing that this is poetry and that what we're trying to be looking at is a painting and to admire it for its beauty, I'd like to actually walk us through the text, um, a couple of verses at a time here, and I'm going to sort of weave them together, and then I'd like us to step back from looking at the individual brushstrokes and look at the picture as a whole and, and let the whole sort of communicate to us what God is trying to say about what he admires in women, all right? So let's start with verse 10, and I will lead us through the different sections, okay? Verse 10 in the ESV. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. You know, in this uh, verse here, we read about this word that we translate as excellent, difficult actually translate the Hebrew word hayil, which... Um, uh, comes across in a few different ways when you look at the Bible. So, for example, if you look at uh, Psalm 33, verse 17, Hayil uh, there is translated as like the strength of a war horse. In Genesis 47, um, we look at that, and it's about able shepherds. That's when Joseph's brothers are appearing before uh, uh, Pharaoh. You have 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 20, where Hayil actually refers to wealthy men and so on. Moses, when he actually gets a number of men to help him to be able to lead the Israelites, he takes these men who are hayil, and he puts them over groups of 10, 50, 100, and 1,000. So elsewhere, this word also refers to men of valor, you know, uh, mighty men who are able to fight. So really, the word carries with it, I think, a sense of competency. There's character. There's courage, you know, behind it, which is hard to capture when you use the word excellent. I actually prefer the word valiant. Uh, because I think it better fits with this sort of military language that you're actually going to find throughout Proverbs 31. And also the fact that uh, the word valiant, I think, acknowledges the idea that what the woman is doing here is not just doing a bunch of tasks, being a multitasker, but she's actually locked in a battle. And that is the battle to, uh, a, the battle to live life well. So I prefer the word valiant, and that's the word that I'm going to use through this. I think it's closer. Now, the question is, what does a valiant wife look like? And I think that the next 22 verses give us sort of 12 broad brushstrokes that you can put together to paint a picture of the valiant wife. So I'm going to go through these one at a time, okay? Number one, the valiant wife is a rare and she's a priceless treasure. So look at verse uh, 22, uh, look at verse, sorry, uh, that 10 that we just saw. 
an excellent wife who can find, right? She is, uh, she's rare. She's rare like jewels. That's what it says. Now, earlier in Proverbs, we read about a faithful man. Who can find a faithful man? In other words, saying that good men are actually rare. Well, guess what? Good women also are very rare. They don't grow on trees. I think that's why Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife actually finds a good thing. Now, for all those of you here who are young men and are contemplating and looking for a wife, I think the key word to note there is finds. It's not stumbles upon or happens to show up at his doorstep, but finding involves some level of activity as well. Given that she is rather rare, you do not simply go for a walk in the park and discover diamonds by your toes. No, you look for them because they are particularly rare. Valiant women are hard to find. I think you actually have to do look carefully. And if you are married to a valiant woman, you are very blessed by the Lord. Second thing that we learn from our text is this. The valiant wife is also completely trustworthy and reliable. Look at verse 11. It says, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Basically, in other words, what it's saying is that the husband's own well-being is actually hinged on the reliability and the complete trustworthiness of her life. You know what's fascinating, actually, about this text is that it says that the heart of the husband trusts in her. And why this is so stunning is that when you read in the Bible, any time the Bible talks about a heart trusting in something apart from God, whether that's money, horses, or chariots, it's almost overwhelmingly always condemned. This is one of the very few places in Scripture where a human being is actually able to place their trust in something other than God, and it's not condemned, but actually celebrated. Now, you look at that and you say, well, why isn't this idolatry? How can that be? And as we go on later, we'll realize that because this is a woman after God's own heart, to put a trust in her living a godly way is really to trust in God himself. And so this is remarkable to think that as a woman or as a an individual being completely trustworthy and being after God is not condemned, but for a husband to put trust in you actually is to trust the Lord's work through you, a God who empowers valiant wives. Third thing here, the valiant wife brings good to her husband in all seasons of life. Verse 12 and verse 23, I'm putting the two of them together, okay? She does him good and not harm all the days of her life, Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, she doesn't ruin him like the quarrelsome wife does earlier in the Proverbs 19, verse 13. No, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, good times and in bad times, she is a constant source of good to him. She's devoted to his good and being the greatest helpmate that she can. Now, the text also mentions city gates here, when the husband goes to sit there. And in the ancient world, city gates were places of justice. They were places of power. This is where people got together and very important decisions were made. You look at the story of Ruth and Boaz, for example. The transaction that took place between Boaz and the kinsman redeemer was done right there at the city gates in front of the elders of the land. This is a prominent place. Now, what's interesting here is that the husband obviously is a prominent man for him to be able to even go to the city gates and to sit there and take his place as an elder. But the focus here, actually, in these verses has nothing to do with the man's reputation or his own skill, but has everything to do with his wife. And it says he basically has renown and is known amongst the elders of the land simply because he has married to such a good woman that people know who he is. Forget you. Let's talk about your wife. How important it is, you know. The influence that a great wife can have is incalculable. Fourth thing here that we learn. The valiant wife has a willing and a servant heart. This is brushstroke number four, okay? Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax, and she works with willing hands. No resentment here. There's no unhappiness in her role. She works willingly and eagerly for what? For her family's good, and the way that she practically does that in this context is through clothing. Now, just remember, in those days, you couldn't go down to Walmart and simply buy clothing, right? So you actually had to make most of the things that you had in your house. So women often had to be very skilled in taking raw ingredients and turning them into very practical things that were useful for their family. You look at actually a number of ancient cultures. They have poems and other things that are written that highlight women who have great skill actually in weaving on looms and so on. In fact, good articles of clothing that were well-constructed could sell for a month or even two months' wages. Can you imagine putting two months of your wages into good clothing for your family? Very, very expensive. It's not like the $5 stuff that we buy today. 
So it's interesting, right? Because the scriptures being written in that ancient world also affirm this value of how expensive clothing is. You see it, for example, when scripture talks about how clothing is exchanged alongside silver, you know, as a type of gift. You read also about how clothing for the Levitical priests is very, very detailed and also well-constructed um, by skilled craftsmen who are filled with the knowledge of God. In other words, well-made, constructed clothes done from really a willing heart signals skill, innovation, and a significant, actually, investment in time. And this comes from a willing heart. A willing heart. This is the valiant wife as she serves her family in this very, very practical need. Number five here, the valiant wife cultivates relational excellence with her culinary excellence. Verses 14 to 15, look at this. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Now today, this is hard to understand because you can go down to Superstore and buy strawberries any time of the year that you want and make these exotic recipes that people could never have done 150 years ago. But in those days, you couldn't actually find exotic foods like that. Yeah, we consider them normal today, but those were exotic foods, out-of-season things, special stew. You couldn't get this unless you went far and found traveling merchants who actually brought it to you on ships. And here we find that the valiant wife is not just responsible for feeding her family with basic meat and potatoes, but here she's actually preparing stuff by going and finding exotic foods from afar to kind of bless her family. Really what she's trying to do here is you can see she's increasing the joy in her home by gathering foods that are not only special, but a real pleasure to have as the family gathers communally, children, husband, and also her servant girls basically to eat together. You know, what's really interesting to note here is that the valiant woman is not simply a housekeeper, okay? But she's a homemaker, and there's a difference between the two. See, a housekeeper can scrub your toilets and clean your floors, but just because you have clean floors and a clean toilet, that doesn't make a home. You know, I've uh, listened to stories of uh, kids, for example, who are in foster homes, and they have wonderful clean homes to live in that are safe, But at the same time, they've told me it doesn't feel like home because they have a nice plate of food which is delicious but nobody to eat it with. So sad, you know. There are many Canadians, I think, who are actually like that. They have full houses, beautiful places to live, but no company at the dinner table. You know, 100 years ago, if you look back at stats in the States, only 2% of people ever ate out. You fast forward today, if you are in a category of people who eat more than two meals, more than two meals a week with your family, you are in the top one-third, basically, top two-thirds, actually, of all families. All families, just two meals a week with your family. You know, families really don't spend time together over the dinner table anymore. In fact, LG Electronics Canada actually did a survey on Canadians And they did a study, and it showed that 77%, more than three-quarters of Canadians, are actually worried that they are losing the ability to make family members simply because families don't actually have time to eat together anymore around the dinner table. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that fast food or takeout food is evil. If you do DoorDash, that you're a horrible person. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is that the question is, is your life so fast-paced, so full of activity, that you're actually failing to cultivate relationships with time spent around normal things like a meal. You know, if you are going outside to buy takeout because you really want to give your family a great meal and then you spend an hour around the table instead of rushing off to answer emails, that's a great thing to do. The point is, this was a normal thing in the ancient world, and a wife understood that the table was a regular part of family life, and therefore she wanted it to be a great experience where everyone could come together and eat. The valiant wife understood in this time, right, that few things said, I love you better than a well-prepared home-cooked meal that was a pleasure to eat. You know, I myself grew up with a mom who was a fantastic cook, and I loved actually eating her food and also helping her to cook. Actually, I liked eating more than I did helping, but I also helped as well. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed, she would make these little mini sort of fish and chip things. They were tiny bite-sized pieces of fish and chips. Could never buy something like that in the store. They were deep fried in oil, and they were hot, and they were crunchy, and you could, you could eat them. 
I loved another thing that she would make of these sweet sort of pork nuggets that were dipped in a vinegary kind of like sauce that had an explosion of sweet and like sort of salty, but at the same time, vinegary flavor. It was such a joy to be able to actually eat at home with my mother. I never really wanted to go to a restaurant. Whenever they would say, do you want to go to a restaurant? I'm like, why would I go to a restaurant when my mom cooks so well? In fact, all my friends would say, you should actually come over instead, right? Don't waste your time outside. You know, um, to this day, I still remember actually how to make, and I do, on occasion make her famous uh, sticky rice dish that many people have tried to actually buy off of her. You know, it's, uh, it's a dish that has, um, you know, it's kind of like sticky rice, and then it has fried onions on the top. It has um, these uh, thin little tiny crispy little shrimp that are cooked to like perfection on there that just like melt in your mouth when you crunch into them. And then to sort of this contrasting flavor, you have these Chinese sausages which are cooked and then they're fried so they're crisp. And as you eat it together with the sticky rice, you have the perfect sort of blend of soft and savory and hot and also crispy. It's just melting together in your mouth. Just thinking about it makes me hungry right now. You know, but um, all those things, you know, when I think about them, I'm like, I have such good memories actually, of the table at home because of my mother's diligence in the way that she wasn't just a housekeeper, but she was a homemaker. You know, she built a home with my dad, one, uh, lovingly, I would say, one dish and one conversation at a time. This is a lost art, I think, in our culture today. You know that eating, I think, is actually one of those rare activities that involve all five of your senses, right? You, 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 You reach your hand out, you touch the food, you see it with your eyes, and you're like, oh, it looks good. You smell it, mm, tasty, right? I mean, you, you look at that, and then you, uh, you hear it actually sizzling in the pan as you're, as you're getting ready to eat, and the last thing is you put it into your mouth and you taste it, right? You just, you just enjoy it. You know, food is one of those rare things that engages all five in your senses. It's very much like worship, I think, even when you taste and you see the Lord is good, I think eating is so important, such a, such a sensory overload and so much of what it means to be human. It's no wonder we're invited in heaven to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like, I know that Jesus is important at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but don't get me wrong, we get to eat, actually, and be together. That's how important eating is. It's no wonder Paul says that you also eat and you drink to the glory of God. And there's a communal aspect, right, to eating. Food is so connected with relationships and people that one day we're going, that's the image Scripture uses to communicate our fellowship. When Jesus is about to die and he's betrayed on that night, what does he do? He has a meal, right? Relational intimacy. I think that's the point of this. You know, I love what Rosaria Butterfield wrote in her article called The Spiritual Warfare of Potato Peeling. Fantastic. She says, hospitality is a lived theology that your unbelieving neighbors can taste and feel. In other words, why meals or good meals with others are so important is that they actually work to build memories and to build relationships with others. And as Christians, we can use these to actually point people to the real relationship that they need to have with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why it's so important. Homemaking, not just housekeeping. Number six, the valiant wife increases her family's wealth with her intelligence. Verse 16 and verses 24. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She makes linen garments and sells them, and she delivers sashes to the merchants. Here you realize that this is a sharp cookie of a woman. She uses her mind. She conducts an evaluation over a piece of land, whether it will be suitable for growing crops and turning a profit. Although it's not explicitly stated here, it sounds like it's the money from her little cottage industry or her textile business that funds the purchase, actually, of the land here. Now, you've got to realize that this isn't easy work, okay? Probably the evaluation of the land has to do with the fact that this is not a piece of land that is already a vineyard. She would probably have looked at this piece of land and said, oh, this thing has potential. She would have had to clear the stones, till the ground, basically, build a watchtower, build a bunch of different trellises, probably got her servant girls to help as well, string up the vines, and basically cultivate this thing. And she's looking at this at this point and saying, it's undeveloped, but I can see the potential here in that it will give me a great produce of grapes that I can probably sell and also bless my family with. This is a woman who understands, how can I help increase my family's wealth and give them better things? She uses her intelligence to basically do so. Number seven, the valiant wife's real clothing is her character. Look at verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Now, our world today says they look for a woman's fashion sense, how she presents herself, what kind of clothing she wears. 
But you know, for the valiant wife, the most important thing for her is not what she puts on in the morning in terms of makeup or mascara. The most important thing for her is that she strengthens herself in the morning by putting on her character. It's her mental and spiritual attitude that says, whatever the day brings for me today, I will be able to face with the Lord's help as I honor him actually in service. That's what she puts on with her prayers when she gets up in the morning. She may not be an athlete, but her arms are strong and well-conditioned for work. You know, once I was actually part of a missions project in which I was uh, working, doing manual labor alongside um, a friend of mine. And I remember looking at this friend of mine at his non-athletic figure and asking and, and thinking to myself, how can he do this? And I asked him, like, how is it you can keep going? Like, I'm, I'm pretty tired, actually, here. You don't even work out, I was thinking. And he just smiled at me, and he, and he said, Sam, I just actually work every day. And then I realized what he was saying by that, and I thought, whoa, like, I was into martial arts, I was fit, I had my gym body at that time, not now anymore. Uh, but I realized this guy actually did real blue-collar work. And the reason I got winded after half an hour is because he was used to working eight hours a day. Even though he didn't look like a fitness model, he was actually the fitter one for work. And this is so true, actually, of wives and people today. The valiant wife might not be able to compete with Instagram athletic fitness models today who can swing kettlebells for 30 minutes in high-intensity interval training and then snap pictures of themselves. No, she's a very practical woman. She might not be able to do that for 30 minutes, but she can haul kids all day, drag sacks of rice, cook meals, take care of the furniture, run errands. She's super fit for serving others, not herself, on social media because that's what her character is. That's what you should look for. Verse eight, number eight, the valiant wife is a hard worker, verses 18 and 27. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Now, this is interesting, right? Because when you look back at verse 15, you realize that she rises before dawn. And here we read that her lamp does not go out at night. Now, this could mean that she works well into the night in addition to getting up early in the morning morning. But it could also mean that she's actually just very diligent in making sure that her lamps are lit, they're trimmed at night so that people in the household actually have light when the sun goes down. It's a sign of her prosperity and wealth, the enduring goodness basically of her home. Either way, what this is saying, I think, is that her job does not clock out or end at 5 p.m., but she goes until everybody else's needs have been fulfilled. She works hard. Number nine, the valiant wife is well prepared for the future. Verses 19, verse 19, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. 21 to 22, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Now, you don't need to be a genius to realize that winter comes around every year in our part of the world. And in Palestine, there was winter and there was snow as well. But the valiant wife here doesn't just know that. She's actually prepared for it. Now, the scarlet that's mentioned here is probably short for scarlet wool that appears in other places in the scriptures. And it would have been very warm, basically, to wear in the wintertime. Now, scarlet purple dye that are mentioned here are really expensive uh, dyes. They had to be made by crushing shells. So, uh, because of their value, you wouldn't just dye anything, you know, with it. Why spend $100, you know, on dyeing a piece of clothing that's worth only 5 bucks? No, you save your good dye for your good clothing. So the implication actually here is of this scarlet clothing that she is making, this scarlet wool clothing, it's actually high-quality clothing. And that's the reason she dyes it, so that it also looks beauty, beautiful. The beauty matches the excellence, actually, of her, of her clothes. This is not 15 bucks stuff from Walmart. This is $150 stuff that's handmade and custom-fitted for her family that will protect them well from the elements when winter rolls around. Now, the point here is don't go out after this and say, well, I need to get a sewing machine and start making my own clothing to be a Proverbs 31 woman. The point is, is this. The wife looks at what the future looks like. She sees the trials up ahead, and she says, how can I best be prepared in order to serve my family in a very practical way? Now, today, what that might mean is that you're really good with the internet and shopping on sale. You look at um, places like Costco or others, and you realize 70% clearance on winter when this thing's coming out. It's time, now's the time to stock up because my kids are going to like wear out their clothing. So I buy now, put it away in my closet, and I am ready for next year. You know, 
that could be something that you could do today. Basically, the point is she's found a way, basically, to maximize the use of her resources so her family is prepared for all circumstances. Maybe it has to do with finances, like a wife who says, I know we have major bill payments coming up. I'm going to organize the bills so that we don't get overloaded on any one particular month and set aside a rainy day fund. So when the roof leaks, and I know that it will, we're not going to have to dip into our line of credit or credit cards to pay for this thing, but we will be prepared. The whole point is preparation. She looks ahead at the wisdom that God, through the wisdom God has given her, how the world operates, and she says, how can I help my family by looking to the future? Number 10, the valiant wife cares for those in need. Look at verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor, and she reaches out her hand to the needy. You know, in verses 1 to 9, which people often don't look at, you, that's before the section on the Proverbs 31 woman, we learn that this chapter, this whole chapter is actually framed as King Lemuel's mother giving teaching and instruction to her son about what he as a king should do before she then tells him what a good woman is that a king should look for. Now, in verses 8 to 9, she actually urges the king to protect the rights of the needy and to fight for them, telling them to use his mouth and his laws and his pen basically to protect them. In other words, a good leader is one who thinks about the poor and he fights with his pen using his policies to ensure that they are taken care of. However, wars are not just fought, you see, with policies or with generals, you know, who are giving orders and making commands. Wars are also fought by those who are on the ground. In this particular case, the war on poverty is not just fought by laws, but by thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of practical servants, valiant wives in this case that the author is highlighting here who actually carry it out and make it happen. Laws, you see, are absolutely useless without laborers. And Lemuel's mother is showing here that the work for the poor is done by valiant wives who carry out service to them. Despite being rich and obviously an aristocrat, this whoever this woman is, and she has servants, and many of you women are thinking, if only I had servant girls, I could do all this too, right? But the point is, even though she has servants, and she's obviously high up in life, this does not stop her from personally giving of herself to ministering with her own hand to the poor. There's nothing here about her social status that drives her away from being a very practical help to people who are in need. Number 11. The valiant wife is praised by her family and her community. Verses 28 to 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. 31. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So just as she got up early in order to be a blessing to her family and her children for years of her life, now as her children are obviously bigger and older and they realize what mom has done, they are the ones who get back up and they praise her in return and they offer her a blessing. See, she doesn't need to praise herself because it's her selfless works that end up speaking and and praising her in and of themselves. And that's actually, I think, the way that God has designed it. You know, in your best years of life as a parent, And as a servant, you give and you give and you give. And then as you enter your twilight years and you're no longer in your best years and health starts to fail and so on, others take the best years of their lives and they give them to you. And this is the whole way that God has designed it to work. You give your best years to others and they in return give their best years to you as God blesses you through other people, your family, your friends. You truly do reap what you sow. And this valiant wife is no exception here. She who is a blessing receives a blessing in return. Number 12, last one. The valiant wife knows God and his word. 3126, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Verse 30, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know, here you actually see the secret sauce behind what makes this woman tick. You know, at her heart, what she is, is she's a God-centered woman. You know, she's a woman who fears the Lord. And you read here basically that wisdom, which is godly wisdom, is actually what is in her mouth. When she opens her mouth, she speaks Bible and Bible-infused wisdom to her children and to those who are around her. It says here that instruction, actually the word here is Torah, which you might know is actually uh, uh, the same word that's used to describe the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. It's just Torah, right? Instruction is on her tongue when she talks. You know, 
In this case, she speaks God's word because she's learned to hide it in her own heart. You know, in Deuteronomy, we read that it's not just men who are taught the word of God, but all Israel, men and women included, were to learn God's word and to store it up in their hearts. And here we see the valiant wife is no exception. She has learned well biblical wisdom from her youth, and so she continues to propagate it and teach it to those who are under her care. This is what a God-fearing woman is. You know, it says here that charm is, and beauty are both basically deceptive in really that they don't show you the inner qualities of what's inside a person. And if happiness is solely based on what you see on another person's face, whether you like the way that they look, you're going to be sorely disappointed one day because every single one of us are slowly going to have our good looks deteriorate. But if your happiness is based on not beauty, but on godly character that only grows sweeter and um, more beautiful over time, your happiness will only grow as you see your spouse grow to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, as we wrap this up, looking at all these 12 things, I know that maybe some of you are thinking here, wow, okay, these are 12 things. It's clear. I can see them now in the Word here, but this is a crazy list. Is this even possible to do? Well, let me, let me say a few things. Historically, Christian women have always looked to Proverbs 31 as an example and an encouragement of how to live and what to do. They've looked to it for guidance. One of the most famous examples is Katie Luther, who was the wife of the great reformer Martin Luther. She was an industrious woman, an ex-nun, who basically got a hold of Martin Luther's teachings, basically, and was converted and uh, married him. She ran the home. She bred and she sold castle, uh, sold cattle on the property that they lived on. She operated a brewery that sold beer and got profits from. She ran a boarding house that was effectively the size of a holiday inn. She had six kids, and she adopted four others. Ruth Tucker, who wrote a modern biography on her, said this, She was far more than a simple housewife. In reality, she was what she would consider today be considered today a manager of a mid-sized business with low-intensity production. During times of sickness, she would transform the... the the estate that they lived on, into a home and a hospital for the sick. Luther was very fond of her, and he called her the morning star of Wittenberg because she would often start work at 4 a.m. in the morning. And because of her skills, Luther trusted her completely, and it freed him up to teach, to write, and to spread the gospel. Katie ultimately was God's woman. That was at the center of her heart. And her very last words as she died was this, I will stick to Jesus Christ as a burr sticks to a cloth. Now, again, okay, this brings up this whole idea. You're thinking of Katie Luther. You say, I can't do that. I, I can barely get up at like 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm so tired. How can you get up at 4 a.m. and run a holiday in? Look, I understand this. right. You might be thinking, I can't be a Katie Luther. I'm a lousy cook. I can't clean. My math is so bad that my husband doesn't dare allow me to do the taxes. You know, he takes care of all of that stuff instead. So I want you to understand this. Don't ignore the Proverbs 31 because the standard that you're looking at is so perfect and you say, like, if I just look at her, it just sends me into depression. What am I supposed to do with her? You know, I once met a man, you know, and I talked to him. He was a a man who was widowed, actually very young, and then he remarried. And uh, he talked about the difficulties his second wife actually faced when he, uh, in moments of despair, and, you know, he would try to talk about through his pain about his first wife, and he would say things like, you know, Ruth used to do this, and, you know, Ruth was so good at doing so, and and, 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 you know, she tried to care for him as best as she could, but she felt it was painful at the same time. And the reason why it was painful is because when a person that you love actually dies, what you tend to do is you tend to remember only the good things and you forget about all the bad things that actually irritated you about that person. See, the difficulty is that a, a dead woman whom you loved is actually a perfect woman. And a perfect woman is, is a woman that no living woman can actually compare to. Nobody can compare with a perfect woman, and I think the same thing is true here. You have to understand this. See, if, if, if Proverbs 31 here is a checklist that you use to measure your own worth and your value up against, you're actually going to feel terrible and ultimately depressed because you're never going to be able to measure up against this woman. Remember, you have to remember, this woman is a composite of the best of wisdom literature, She's an ideal of all the teachings of this book. She barely sleeps. She gets up before dawn and she goes to bed, uh, you know, after midnight, it looks like. This is not sustainable long term. But you have to remember, this is a portrait of hard work. The point is not to 
pick out 4 a.m. or calculate the time of the dawn. The point is to look at this and say, in all these things, this is what it would be to be perfect. Now, this is why the gospel is actually essential in order to read Proverbs 31 properly. See, as a Christian, we are taught that Jesus Christ is the one that we are to imitate, and he as our Lord and Savior is also perfect, the perfect example of what it means to be fully human and to live a life that is worthy of God and therefore thus to emulate. Now, if you know that Jesus is perfect and you are trying to measure up to him, know this, you will never measure up to him. And if your point in this life is you're thinking that the way to be right with God is to make my life as perfect as Jesus Christ, looking at his character, his person, his perfection is going to crush you. It's actually going to absolutely demoralize you because you're going to try so hard, and at the end of the day, you're going to say, I fall so far short of that. How can I ever live a true life as a human being? There's no point even in trying whatsoever. And see, this is why the gospel is so important. If you understand that your value before God has been established by Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin and made you his precious child, this will change you. Because you realize that your ultimate worth as a daughter of God has already been established. See, the religions of this world are like this. They are like fathers who talk to their little girl and they say, little girl, my daughter, I want you to follow my rules. And if you succeed, I will continue to be your daddy and I'm going to let you be my daughter. But don't you dare fail me because I will punish you if you do. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this, daughter, I adopted you to be my very own. I took you in and I claimed you to be mine. You are loved by me, and therefore I want you to imitate me and live according to the rules of my home. And I want to help you and empower you to basically to do that. Would you do that for me? See, that's so different. Because when you fail and you don't live up to the standard, you're not worried about being kicked out of the father's house. You have a father who says to you, I will help you. I will forgive you. You repent, and we will continue to work on this. I will strengthen you so that you grow to be more like me. There's a huge difference, you see. Religion looks at you and says, do this, and you will earn my favor. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, look at what has been done for you. You are loved, so do and be who you are already called to be by my love. See, the Proverbs 31 is impossibly perfect, yet the call to imitate her is not a call to be depressed and to measure yourself up against the checklist, but a standard, an ideal, a call to imitate a woman whose ultimate standard and whose ultimate sort of picture that even she would look up to is the work, is the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's why when you look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 to 14, and he says, talking about not having a righteousness of my own, he says that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he stops and says, brother, it's not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So you see how the logic works here with Paul. Paul says, because I've already been justified, because I'm a child of God, God gave me this righteousness by faith. I'm not perfect like Jesus, but I want to be, and I put my whole life into striving by his grace and by his power. I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. And if you get that, that's how the gospel transforms you into living a life that's worthy of God. If you really grab the, grasp the gospel, you're not going to live a life of sin. You're not going to live a life just for yourself and be worldly. You'll really get the gospel. You'll want to look like Jesus. And the same thing is true for the Proverbs 31 woman. If you are a Christian woman here, you have to read Proverbs 31 through a gospel lens. Don't beat yourself up and try to earn your own righteousness and say, oh, I'm going to be a good woman now because I got 14 out of these 15 things, whatever. You say, I'm a child and daughter of God. This is his picture for me. God, by your grace, help me to flourish in this way. I'm weak in cooking. I'm weak in math. My sister in Christ is weak in other areas that I am not. None of us are going to be perfect, but by his grace, we will strive. We will hold each other accountable to be the best wives we can possibly be. So that at the end of the day, it's not about what my company will say. It's not about what other people will say. It's about what my Lord says about me. See, 
if you're a single woman here, honestly, there's nothing that in here about the valiant wife that doesn't apply to you as well. You may not have family, you may not have kids to apply yourself to, but you have spiritual family in the kingdom of God. Everything that she does here is about building relationships, serving others, being diligent, and so on. You don't need a physical family to do those things. In Christ Jesus, your family has been massively expanded. So this is for you too as well. All women. Now for you as brothers, as I close, you know, I want to say this, you're not off the hook as well here. You have to remember that verses 1 to 9 talk to the uh, king, and that also interspersed in this actually are a number of exhortations to men. There's a call actually for you here as well. You look at verse 12. It says that the heart of the husband trusts in her. I would say, do you trust your wife? Do you actually give her opportunities? Do you place your trust in her and help her to grow in her trust? Do you offer encouragement and praise her in the areas that she's weak in so you can actually grow her and actually help her? Or help, praise her in the areas that she does well in so that she, she continues to grow? That's what it says. She is praised by her children and her husband. Verse 10, do you treasure her as if she's actually like jewels and rubies or do you treat her poorly? You know, reading this myself, I have to repent of some of these things and say, my goodness, I actually don't. I had to think about this this week as well. Does your wife flourish under your leadership? Do you offer encouragement? Do you trust her? Do you praise her? Do you do your part? Are you a Proverbs 31 man? There is a call for you too as well here, brothers. You know, church, whoever we are, you know, we can clearly see that the valiant woman here, the valiant wife is a woman of care, devoted to the good of those around her. I'm not saying that a career is wrong here, but what God calls a woman to is care, care and service to those around her. And if your career gets in the way of the care that God wants you to have for those he's placed in your circle, career has to go. There's no way about it. You may never be a hero in the boardroom. You may never ascend to the heights of power. But if you're a sacrificial hero to the few people who God has placed in your lives, if you are the world to them, your father looks on you with pleasure. And there is nothing that you could ever give up that the Lord himself will not reward you with, with more. To live under the pleasure of God, to know his satisfaction, is the joy of your soul, and you will carry this into eternity. Your job will last for 30, 40, 50 years. The souls around you will last forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us your word that rescues us, God, from our culture's ever-shifting way of thinking. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to be a church that grows and supports Proverbs 31 women who are known for their beautiful character and service and fear of the Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would help give them grace in the areas that they fall short of. And Father, I pray that you would help us men in the church to be Proverbs 31 men who nourish, sacrifice, praise, encourage, and put trust in our sisters in Christ so that they might be glorified. Father, help us in these things. We can't do it on our own, and we need you. So Lord, we commit our church to you. Help us to honor you, male and female, so that the name of Jesus Christ might not be reviled, but held up high for all the world to see. In Jesus' name I pray.